Open God's holy word to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2 and verse 10. Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to Yahweh as God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us according to who you've revealed yourself to be to us in Christ. Have mercy such that we may exclaim with Jonah, salvation is of you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Two sea mines threaten to impede our way as we attempt to navigate this text. Two controversies have preoccupied the discussion not only of the scriptures in front of us, but the book of Jonah as a whole. The first one concerns whether or not this is fact or fiction. Jonah is thought to be a big fish story because of this big fish. Sinclair Ferguson says of this fish, it must be the most criticized fish that ever swam in the Mediterranean. We could add the world. One sometimes hopes that there may be provision for the fish to speak in the new earth so that this poor creature can have the opportunity to answer its critics. <laughs> this is a silly debate. I understand why unbelievers would laugh at our fish story. But that so many saints are uncomfortable with it that they think it absurd shows that we're trying to prove ourselves according to the world's standard. We act as if they are the judge and we've got to somehow prove ourselves. We, we display the same kind of silly behavior anytime a celebrity converts to Christ. And we should rejoice 
if someone indeed has, has been saved. But what we do is we act as if because a celebrity has converted, this somehow makes Christianity credible. And we do the same thing with science. Science has said that we all do really come from one person. And we get excited as if this is some... We know this. And it doesn't matter whether or not some scientists has finally come to this conclusion. God said it long ago. Many, even those who profess to be Christians, will say that we know that the Bible isn't true because this story can't be true. And our immediate response should be, we know that this story is true because we know that the Bible is true. We believe that Yahweh is Lord. He's sovereign. We believe in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Lord. And we believe that God has spoken, and He's spoken like a God without error, without any lie. God has spoken. And so why do we get uncomfortable with this account of a fish swallowing a man? Why should we fret whenever scientists tell us that our religion is bogus? Because a whale can't swallow a man, a man can't survive inside a fish for three days. Well, the truth that scientists peddle changes and has to be revised every so many seconds now. And one day all will bow to His truth, God's truth, which never changes. See, at best, science can demonstrate that such a thing is possible. But it can never demonstrate that it's impossible. They can demonstrate that it's impossible with man, but we're not dealing simply with man here. We're dealing with God. And still, some saints will try to bypass all this debate and say, well, it's inspired fiction. It's a parable. It's a fable of sorts. It's, it's not meant to be taken as historical, but this is the same kind of cowardice that accept, attempts to be cool according to the world's rules. And it's just a pathetic bowing to them. Did this happen? Our Lord has settled the matter whenever he said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was, so will I be. Now the second mine that threatens us as we try to navigate these waters is the controversy regarding the fish itself, or whale, or sea monster. What is it? The Hebrew word that we have here and the Greek word used by Christ in the New Testament both are ambiguous. They don't settle the matter. It could be any of these things. Unfortunately, those who don't doubt the veracity of this book get led astray in such frivolous debates, and I believe they largely do so because they're trying to make it seem credible. They're trying to think about what was most likely, what is possible, you see? But, again, we're dealing with God. God could have supersized a clownfish to swallow Jonah and then shrunk him back, back down to size, washing him in the warm, salty sea. God has spoken. And we know it's a great fish. We know nothing more. And beyond that, it doesn't matter. God has spoken. Let us be silent. These two minds can distract us from the current of this text which we are meant to follow. 
Instead of worrying whether or not this is fact and fiction, we should be asking, why did God do it in this way? He does nothing without purpose. What's his aim? Why deliver Jonah in this particular way? And instead of the drama over whether this is a fish or a whale or a sea monster, we need to see the drama that occurs in Jonah himself in this prayer. Even from a literary standpoint, a failure to do so is tragic. Thomas Carlyle is reputed to have written, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside Jonah. Sinclair Ferguson rightly notes, The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. This book records a miracle characterized by restoration, not just by preservation. The amazing thing isn't that God preserves Jonah's life inside the belly of the whale, but that he restores this prophet and works in his soul such that he exclaims, salvation is of Yahweh. Now the subject of 117 is God. Our fascination shouldn't be with the great fish, but with the great God. Ultimately, God is always the subject. In the grand sentence of the Bible, God is the subject. God appointed. He is sovereign. And this is why all efforts at disproving 117 are irrelative, laughable. Because the issue is not whether or not you believe the latter part of verse 17, this fish swallowing Jonah, but the first part, Yahweh appointed. If God is sovereign, He does as He pleases. Have you ever considered that if God is at play here, He could have made a tiny fish to swallow Jonah? The miracle could have worked in another way, whenever God is at work here. The laws of nature do not stand over God. He stands over them. They are because He is. C.S. Lewis observed, if, if the laws of nature are necessary truths, no miracle can break them. But then, no miracle needs to break them. It is with them as with the laws of arithmetic. If I put six pennies into a drawer on Monday and six more on Tuesday, the laws decree that other things being equal, I shall find 12 pennies there on Wednesday. But if the drawer has been robbed, I may in fact find only two. Something will have been broken, the lock of the drawer or the laws of England, but the laws of arithmetic will not have been broken. The new situation created by the thief will illustrate the laws of arithmetic just as well as the original situation. If God comes to work miracles, He comes like a thief in the night. The laws are telling us all things being equal. These are the ways things will play out. But whenever God decides to act immediately, things aren't equal anymore. He goes on to say, This will perhaps make a little clearer what the laws of nature really are. We are in the habit of talking as if they caused events to happen. But they never caused any event at all. The laws of motion do not set billiard balls moving. They analyze the motion after something else, say a man with a cue or a lurch of the liner, or perhaps supernatural power has provided it. The laws of nature are us simply observing how God normally plays the game. He's free to change it up. He's Lord. See, we're not simply dealing with the one who sets the billiard balls moving, but also who holds them together at every level of their existence and who has planned everything about their paths. 
Our eyes are so clouded, though, that we can't even see that what we regard as the natural is supernatural. All is upheld by the word of His power. He's Yahweh. He has absolute authority and power. He has absolute authority, and that is seen in in the way that He commands Jonah in this with absolute right over him. Go to Nineveh. But he not only has absolute authority to say that this is the way things should be, he has absolute power to make them so. He is sovereign. He's Lord. Christians don't simply believe this about the great fish. They believe this about everything. Everything is supernatural. We say with the mariners, as they did earlier, that he does as he pleases. And we say with the psalmist that whatever he pleases... He does. None can stay his hand. God appoints his fish, and it's by appointment also that Jonah will be inside this fish for three days and three nights. Now, why? Why Why three days, three nights? Why this well? What is God up to in this? What is his purpose? And sometimes, whenever we begin to ask these questions, we just simply have to answer, it's none of our business. But this is a detail which Revelation makes clear is meant to be meaningful to us. Jesus makes clear what's intended here both by his teaching and his life, or perhaps instead of life we should more appropriately say by his death and resurrection. Matthew 12, remember the Pharisees ask for a sign and Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus, what God is intending to convey by this as the author of history and foreshadowing what is to come, will be made more clear in the verses ahead. But for now, notice this. The the meaning is not simply chronological, three days. But there's something theological that's intended by being in the belly of this fish as it descends to the depths for three days and then Jonah coming out of that. From the belly of this fish, Jonah prays, verses 1 and 2. And this is the first time in the narrative that we've heard Jonah pray. Even more surprising, this is the first time we've seen Jonah speak at any substantial length at all. This is shocking because this is a prophet that we're dealing with here. This is a prophet's book that we're dealing with here. And he says so little. You remember the mariners call out to their false gods in 1-5. Then the captain of the ship rebukes Jonah, calling for him to pray in 1.6. But he doesn't. We get no indication of his prayer. And then we see the mariners calling out to Yahweh in 1.14. But it's not until this point that Jonah cries out. And it's at this point that I think we overlook what is perhaps the most meaningful thing for this whole book. It's easily overlooked. It's so subtle. Note this. What you have here is not so much a poetic record of Jonah's prayer as a poetic recounting of his praying. 
not a poetic record of his prayer. We're not listening to Jonah pray. We're hearing Jonah tell us about his praying. He brings up aspects of his prayer in the belly of this whale, but he's telling you about his praying in the belly of this fish. You see, this isn't real time anymore. The narrator isn't unfolding events for us in real time at this point. We have this insertion of a reflection that happens after the fact. It's still arranged chronologically, but the narrator's not speaking anymore. You have Jonah speaking in reflection now. One thing this does is it speaks to the matter of authorship. We can't say dogmatically whether or not Jonah wrote this book. We can absolutely say he wrote the prayer or the account of his praying from 2 to 9. But I think it most likely what you have here is Jonah first wrote this poetic expression of what happened in the belly of this fish. And then the book was crafted around this psalm, if you will. Well, here's the significance, first of all. Just speaking of 2, 2 through 9, being of Jonah's own hand. Do you realize this? This is the last word then from Jonah on the subject. This is how Jonah's recollection, how his, how his looking back on everything that happens here ends. Salvation is of Yahweh. I don't think Jonah, after he was spewed out by the whale, took time. He may have pinned this down at this time. I don't think he took time to have it published, to put it out there, to broadcast it at this point. This happens, as far as it's well known and Jonah spreading this word, this happens after Nineveh. And he says, salvation is of Yahweh now. Let's assume, again, we cannot be dogmatic, but I think we have good reason to assume that Jonah did write the book. Who would write a work leaving a prophet of Yahweh in such a bad light, especially knowing that his last word was one of repentance? I think the only answer is Jonah himself. Jonah could own up to his own sinfulness and paint it in the ugliest of colors because the gospel of God's grace, that salvation is of Yahweh, has sunken down to the depths of his soul. Why in this treasure of a book highlighting Jonah's sin as it does? If you leave Jonah only being disgusted at Jonah, well, you got that point right, but you're missing the major point of the book. And it's the mercy and kindness of our God towards sinners. Such that you exclaim with Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. So here's Jonah praying to Yahweh, his God. Calling out to Yahweh. Do you see why it's so important that we understand that a name is being used here and not a mere title? He's calling out to Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God, the name that God gave to His people that they might call upon Him and that they might know Him by. Exodus 34, God reveals to Moses something of what this name means. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. 
Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, this ends with Jonah rejoicing, reveling in what he accused God of in chapter 4. I knew this is what would happen because I knew that you are a God who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. It's on the basis of who God has revealed himself to be in redeeming his people to himself that Jonah cries out to God. Do you see what true prayer is here? It's crying out to God upon the basis of who God has said he is. If your prayers feel empty, if you're struggling in prayer, the answer is not to just try harder at praying. The answer is to go to God's Word, to see His promises, to see the truth of who He is and cry out to Him on the basis of who He said He is. And whenever you pray in this way, you're heard. The gods of the sailors did not hear, nor could they answer. Jonah cries out. He's answered. He cries and he's heard. The mariners cry out to Yahweh. They are heard. Because they're acting according to the word that was delivered to them by Jonah. Jonah prays and he's heard because he's crying out to God upon the basis of who God has revealed himself to be to his people. And the Ninevites cry out to God and they're heard because they're crying out upon the basis of the word of God. This is what was spoken to them. Now why does Jonah cry out? Do not think that the answer is obvious. Jonah tells you why. Verse 3, I called out. I cried, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. Jonah cries out to Yahweh because he's dealing with Yahweh. Yahweh, by his name, not only communicates that he's a God of grace and mercy, but that he's righteous and just. And thus, he cries out to Yahweh because he's dealing with Yahweh. Know this, if you cry out to Yahweh for deliverance, this is the reason why you must do so. Not because you have to deal so much with the enemies of God or with Satan or with the demons, or even with sin itself. Yes, you need deliverance from your sins, but you need deliverance from your sins because you have to deal with a righteous and holy God. Cry out to God because you need to be rescued from God. The reason why your sins trouble you so is because you have to deal with God. Who cast Jonah into the sea? The sailors? Yes. But only in a secondary sense, more than the sailors. It was God, by means of the sailors. You see how the Bible puts human so- divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side? The sailors did it. And they're fearful for their souls. What does this mean for us before God if this man is innocent? God, you're doing as you're pleased. We're acting upon how we've seen you reveal yourself here. They realize there's a responsibility that falls upon their shoulders. But ultimately... 
Who's responsible? God. It's like asking who killed Macbeth. It would be correct to say Macduff. It's even more true to say Shakespeare. And if you object, well, I'm, I'm, I have free will. I'm more than some two-dimensional character in a story. God is more than Shakespeare. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wind gusts, the sea foams, the earth reels and smokes. Nature is red in tooth and claw because Yahweh is against us. And if Yahweh is against you, it doesn't matter who is for you. And the only place to seek refuge from God is in God. As Jonas taught us, <laughs> you can't but run into God. Run from Him and you run into Him and you'll always find the side you run into is worse than the side you run from. But you can run to Him, pleading His mercy and grace because of who He's revealed Himself to be. Because He's not only a God of wrath, that nature testifies to but the Scriptures tell us He's a God of mercy. And you may think that Jonas is crying out here for the same reason any sinful self-idolater would. Just self-preservation, just wanting to enjoy my idols, my life, longer. But it's clear that Jonah realizes what makes death, death. It's not simply the loss of life, but it's the loss of God. Verse 4, I said... I am driven away from your sight to be plunged to the depth, to go down to the bit, to the pit, excuse me, to sink down into the grave is to be driven away from the sight of Yahweh. In this life, even fallen man, as he abides under the wrath of God, enjoys something of God's benevolence and kindness and long-suffering and patience. But in the grave, on the other side of death, he knows nothing but God's justice and wrath outside of Christ. Remember that Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of Yahweh. This is better translated, the face of Yahweh. And now, he seems to have succeeded, and he's terrified at the thought. The idea is not that he's found a place where Yahweh is not, but he's found a place where Yahweh doesn't dwell with his face shining down upon him in love and covenant and blessedness, but only to come to the place where God's gaze of fury and wrath falls upon him. Number six tells you what Jonah is fearful of losing here. It's known as the Aaronic blessing. It's how the priests were instructed to bless the people putting his name on them. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. What Jonah's terrified of here as he sinks to the depths is the loss of God. If you were plunged to the depths by the hand of God, what would your greatest fear be? Loss of life as you like to live it? Loss of the idols you want to enjoy? Pain? Or would it be the loss of God? 
John Piper has penetratingly asked, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Inversely, we could ask, is the most terrifying thought of hell the loss of every earthly good and pleasure and beauty you've ever known? Or is it the loss of God? Now, do you see the tension, the drama that's in Jonah here? It's right there in verse 4. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. If we only knew the terror of the Lord, we wouldn't cry out. But because He's revealed Himself not only a righteous and holy God, but a merciful and gracious God, we can cry out. He shall look again upon Yahweh's temple. He believes this. He, he, he sees this with the eyes of faith. And this is pregnant with meaning. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. You remember in John we're told that He became flesh and dwelt among us. The better translation would be He tabernacled. He tented among us in flesh. But Christ is insufficient to be the temple, the meeting place of God and man where man and God come together. He's insufficient to do this in His incarnation alone. That flesh must be broken in another instance, whenever the Jews ask him for a sign, remember he said, those who seek a sign, no sign is given to it except the sign of Jonah. This is the same sign, but listen how he speaks of it in this instance. John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus, to be the temple, the meeting place of God and man, that temple must be destroyed and built again. There must be death and resurrection. Are you beginning to see something of why God wanted to use this well and bring Jonah down to the depth so far that it's as if he were dead and separated from God? And then, in resurrection, to go forth and proclaim God's salvation to the Gentiles. By Christ, we enter the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 10 tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Don't you see that happening in the heart of Jonah here? Oh, he's already saved, but it's just experience. This is what sanctification is. It's just the experience of deeper and deeper uh, knowledge and, and, and working out of all that we taste in that moment when we're first converted. Jonah places his faith in this, as it were, in embryo. He believes Christ is 
promised, held forth in the name of God, in the covenant of God, in the temple. And he calls out and he has heard, Sinner, if you sense the depths of your sin, if you are terrified at the thought of the loss of God, if you believe in the good news of Christ crucified for sinners, upon the basis of these promises as they're held out in the word of God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in these things, call out to him and he will hear your prayer. He will lift you up out of the depths. Before we move on to his deliverance, Jonah wants to remind us in verses 5 through 6 how far down he went. In chapter 1, you remember we see Jonah going down and down and down. He goes down to Joppa, 1-3. 1-3 again, down into the ship, 1-5. We see him going down into the inner part of the ship. And then a similar word is used to tell you that he's fast asleep or better translated, deep asleep. But now you see how far God brings Jonah down to the depths of the sea, to the roots of the mountains. And from the depths, from the pit, God brings him up. From the pit, Jonah's salvation comes by death and resurrection. Three days is this vivid picture. Jonah being in the depths, in this well, three days. This is a vivid picture of death. And the sign of Jonah isn't simply that Jesus dies like that. The point of the sign is that he will rise again. And yet Jonah, again, recounts this experience in different words. Verse 7 When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh. This is covenant language, this language of remembering. He remembers Yahweh. He's remembering covenant. He's remembering who He's promised to be. And thus He prays to Him and thus His prayer comes into God's holy temple. Do you see how this is just solidifying how we've looked at the verses prior? But in contrast now, we have those who pay regard to idols. They forsake their hope of steadfast love. And this term for steadfast love... You remember whenever we were reading in Exodus 34, where God is bringing out what His name means? Twice that passage speaks of His steadfast love, or hesed, or I think better translated, His covenant love, or His covenant faithfulness. Now, why would Jonah bring up idolaters at this point? We, we don't see any idolatry in Jonah, save the idolatry of self. Well, you remember whenever Jonah prophesied? It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, shortly before Israel's going to be led into exile because of their idolatry. We're told that Jeroboam II, 2 Kings 14, continued in the ways of Jeroboam I, who led Israel to sin, led them into false worship. Idolatry is abounding in Israel. And Jonah has acted in rebellion just as Israel is acting in rebellion. And those who do so forsake their hope of steadfast love, of God's covenant love. But here's the hope of the book of Jonah, that those who call out to Yahweh will know His mercy. And what's the response of those who know the mercy and covenant love of God? In gratitude and devotion, He offers up 
a sacrifice as thanksgiving and he resolves to fulfill his vows. Jonah does this not for his salvation. Jonah does this because of his salvation. Now with Jonah, we're dealing with someone who was already saved. But nonetheless, you see, if this is all true of Jonah after his salvation, how much more true is it of him before his conversion? Jonah exclaims in this, I think this is the central point of the book. Indeed, this is the glorious point of the Scriptures. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And in this instance, I love the, the more Elizabethan terminology of the King James Version. Salvation is of Yahweh. We've seen God's sovereignty displayed mightily in this book. But now you see to what end and what point. This is the point of, of the Scriptures. The sovereign saves sinners. The sovereign saves sinners. It's nothing of man. It's all of God. Salvation is of Yahweh. It's His doing. God's sovereign salvation is often labeled as Calvinism. It's not Calvin that originated this. It's the Bible. It's Jonah. J.I. Packer, and that's often distilled in five points, right? But it's much more simple than that. J.I. Packer writes, For the five points, though separately stated, are really inseparable. They hang together. You cannot reject one without rejecting them all. For to Calvinism, there's really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology, and that's the doctrine of salvation. There's only really one point to be made, he says. The point that God saves sinners. Salvation is of the Lord. And you see this not simply in God's work on Jonah, but God's work in Jonah. Because his heart has been changed. And it's for that reason that he cries out to God upon the basis of his promises. He's crying out, you see, not simply to God. That's what sinful man does. He does no more than that. He doesn't just cry out to God. He cries out for God. To look upon his holy temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. His yearning is for God. Sinners sin, the sovereign saves. H.I. Ironside once told a story about an older Christian who gave a testimony speaking of how God sought him, God found him, God loved him, God called him, God saved him, God delivered him, God cleansed him, and afterwards someone pulled him aside and said, I really appreciated all you said about God, but you didn't mention anything about your part. Salvation is really part us and part God. And the reply came, oh yes. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. And his part was running after me until he caught me. Well, that's a good answer and it's just shy though of an excellent answer that realizes this. God's grace can outrun our sin at any moment. It's just a question of when he pleases. 
William Temple put it this way, the only thing of our very own which we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. That was my part. My part was being the sinner, and his was being my Savior. Salvation is of Yahweh. The saints can't say it enough. Even if they haven't teased all this out in their mind, their heart of hearts, they will rejoice at this thought. God saved me. It was not me. God saved me. God has hurled the wind. God has appointed a great fish. And now he speaks so that this fish spews him out onto dry land. Now many have, like we said, fretted trying to identify what this fish was. But I think it, it is clear. It's an Armenian fish. <laughs> Spurgeon is rumored to have joked. We know that the great fish was an Armenian. Because no sooner did Jonah pray, salvation is of Yahweh, than the great fish spat him out of its mouth. Why are there such controversies over this book? Because sinful man does not like this truth. That salvation is of Yahweh. But saints, we should not be disturbed by their ridicule or they're laughing at our fish story. The saints should pay no attention to such objections. We should just simply keep exclaiming with Jonah, Salvation is of Yahweh. And this came to its full revelation in the one whose name was Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves Yeshua. When did God save us, saints? Well, one way we could say before the foundation of the world when He chose us. But when was it actually accomplished? It wasn't accomplished on some day that you can remember in the history of your life. He saved you 2,000 years ago when the incarnate one was crucified and cried out to Yahweh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And indeed, unlike Jonah, he was. But even so, his prayers were heard by the holy God. And the proof that they were is that three days later, that temple was rebuilt. And in him, God and man come together such that the saints will eternally sing. Salvation is of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Christ. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for moving us to pray. Thank you for causing us to be born again such that we would cry out from new hearts, truly longing for God. Thank you for your severe mercy and discipline and grace that draws us to you. Father, may we rejoice now and may we proclaim to our neighbors, to our friends, to the lost and dying, to those who are in the depth, those who are in the pit of sin, those who are dead in their transgressions. May we proclaim to them salvation is of Yahweh and may we do it with joy because we know that our God brings the dead to life. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.